I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. Somewhere at least once. I mean, <laughs> God, Hitler was right. Okay, <laughs> does that make me a bad person? He didn't go far enough. I think he was. Yeah, give him a break. He was just a middling painter. <laughs> he had a bad ten years. If there's one thing. thing to learn from the lessons of Adolf Hitler, it's that we need to support the arts. <laughs> See. <laughs> <laughs> How much better would the world uh, that should, be? That should be like a, a public service announcement for the National Endowment for the Arts. Yes, yeah, seriously. <laughs> what genocidal maniac out there just needs a little bit of cash on Patreon to stop his bloody path? <laughs> because it's all it takes. The The porter that shows up and gives the milk. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Thumbs up, wink. Thumbs up. Oh, the... the he was the, amazing! And he walks in and he's... Oh, God. <laughs> and and uh, Cooper's gut shot. Yeah. And he's bleeding out on the floor. And he's like, you better, it'll cool down on you. And he keeps coming back to <laughs> give him another thumbs up. Doesn't he, like, wink seven times, yes, too? Yes, he winks or an awful lot. Yeah. Do you think he actually eventually called the cops? Or do you think somebody else... Hell uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Andy on the phone. He's oh. a, Agent Cooper, Agent Cooper, and then Agent Cooper doesn't answer, uh, and then that's when they yeah. come like 10 minutes later and bust down the door. The old man hangs up the phone. Yes, the old man does hang up the phone. Yes. Oh, man, <laughs> I would leave them such a bad Yelp review. <laughs> uh, yeah, a man I will forever think of as Senor Drool Cup, the world's most <laughs> decrepit room service maker. Oh, that's the best name. Oh, my no, God. I, no, here's the thing that I wanted to talk about. Because that's how Albert refers to him. Oh, you know, that's I really right. Question, Senor Cup. Yes. <laughs> uh, 95% of Albert's lines are basically the most memorable lines of the entire show. Yeah. Oh, God. Again, that's I know we, we talk it up, but Miguel yeah. Ferrer, you are amazing, sir. There's the bit that's, uh, I've traveled back in, or I've traveled hundreds of miles and apparently backwards in time several centuries to this town. and like, <laughs> He's just such an <laughs> asshole. Yeah. Isn't, isn't Miguel, Fer- Miguel Ferrer the guy that's in Beverly, or not Beverly Hills, why, why did I say Beverly Hills Cop? I mean Robocop. <laughs> he is that's Robocop. Like a, and he's, do- he's doing lines yeah. off, of, off of the tits of a hooker, right? Yes. Yes. That's yeah, he, Miguel Ferrer. That's, yeah. what, that's the way I picture Miguel Ferrer in my mind. Uh, yeah, Miguel Ferrer in almost every movie is a middle management asshole who's always spectacular. <laughs> Everything that comes out of his mouth sounds amazing. He's the one in RoboCop who is the up-and-coming corporate stooge guy who's fighting really hard, and RoboCop is his initiative. Right. He's the one fighting to get that done. And, of course, he gets murdered during a classic 1980s Coke party. <laughs> I really um, wish I'd get the chance. RoboCop has Oh my god, you're right. Go ahead, Robocop Paul. has four four Twin Peaks cast members in it. Yes, that's right. Um the Mr. Because the old man who yes. runs OCP. Yeah, he's there. He plays, plays uh, Catherine's uh, uh, brother. Catherine Martell's husband. Yep. Uh Ray Wise is one of Clarence Boddicker's goons. Yeah. 
That's right. And uh, I think I think David Warner has a brief appearance as well. But wait, yeah. David Warner is in? It's, yeah, it was in Twin Peaks. Yeah, David Warner played uh, the guy who owned Josie. No, 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 no. You're, was, thinking uh, some, you're thinking of somebody different. The guy, the old guy with the no, safety safe Wa- deposit box key, with a cartoon bomb in it. Yeah, that's not David. That's not that's not David that's Warner. Oh, the cartoon bomb. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the did, note. did they did they imply that Audrey Horn is dead? I think they did because yeah. she couldn't she couldn't have survived being chained to the fence in the same room that those that, uh, that, that they, they were in. Yeah, I like that, that when she changed herself to the fence, she doesn't chain herself in such a way that it prevents them from opening the door. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, I love the idea that um, the old man, uh, Catherine's brother, just goes, I respect your convictions, and he just walks right past her. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, I like yep. the fact that she does nothing to actually prevent the operation of the bank, that if she had just moved her arm to the other set of bars and chained it there then they would have shut the bank down. Mm. It would have been effective direct action <laughs> activism, but instead all she manages to do is to be a minor nuisance, and she politely gets out of the way when they want to use a safety deposit box. <laughs> but the cartoon bomb, yep. there's no way they could have survived, but maybe they could because cartoon, you know, cartoon physics is a big part of Twin Peaks at times. You're, you're totally right, Paul. Uh, he was mm. in there. I must have just not seen those episodes. That was David Warner? Yeah, it was David Warner. Mm. Holy shit. Yeah, David Warner played... Evil Hong Kong businessman guy Eckhart. Uh, oh yeah, no, tw- Twin Peaks is full of yeah Aaron Aaron Eckhart. I think no, Aaron Eckhart's the actor, isn't he? Yeah, Thomas Eckhart. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But he, yeah, he played Thomas Eckhart. Yeah, yeah. I also noticed the but yeah. No, Twin Peaks is full of weird cameos. And the um, the guy who worked for Thomas Eckhart. Uh, when uh, Jocelyn uh, murdered him, remember she killed him and escaped. You remember the headline from like the Seattle Times: "Asian man killed." Two exclamation points. <laughs> Two exclamation. That's, in terms of journalistic integrity, that's pretty similar to what the real Seattle Times is like. So. <laughs> uh, well, you know, there, there's a little a special bit of of hometown pride to see the uh, the sort of B roll insert shots of the Snoqualmie Falls. And the mm. uh, you know that that is the Great mm. Northern Lodge, the exterior for the Great Northern Lodge. But the 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 similarities are really only just surface. You know, it's, it's but it, it has a certain you know personality to it. I mean, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed watching mm. it that I think made it feel more real. Is that and Paul, you can to a much greater extent to the three Americans in this room. We're so used to seeing mm. only a limited number of cities get represented on television and mm. in movies. I mean, how often do mm. we have to see Los Angeles and sometimes Chicago, but mostly yep. just New York, New York, New York, New York, New York. And even when you have a small rural or town... Or Toronto pretending to be New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> over and over again. It's just Toronto again. <laughs> and uh, that's the thing is that when you see a rural town, it's usually like a southern rural town. There's or Midwest. An old, Midwest. There's yeah. only a couple mm. places. You're like in either Indiana or Alabama. Those are the mm-hmm. only places that you can be in a small town. Mm. Racism? or cheese. Yeah. <laughs> like, or both. Or corn, yeah. Racist cheese. Racist cheese. And uh, one of the things I just I love about it is that it's a Pacific Northwest town. And it just strikes mm. me because when you drive 20 minutes in any direction out of an urban area in Washington State, you will find a town that looks exactly like Twin Peaks. Yeah. You don't have to go very far where you mm. see that exact diner, that exact storefront, a shutdown mill. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's everywhere. And mm. there's something just so utterly familiar about it. And it didn't really matter how bizarre everything got 
because that aspect that is just immediately familiar to me as a Pacific Northwesterner. I've been born here. I have lived in this area my entire life. Mm. It just looks so familiar and real and tangible that I could handle so much more weirdness because it was Pacific Northwest. And what show was happening there? I mean, I don't think that... Oh, we certainly weren't doing Northern Exposure yet. No, Northern Exposure was early 90s. Was, no. be- was before... But, I think it was... Was it before? No. No, Northern Exposure was one of the shows that came... Like, there were a ton of shows that came out in the in the sort of vacuum that Twin Peaks cancellation caused. Hmm. And Northern Exposure was one of them. Um, what was... Oh, God, there was a show where I think it was... You're thinking Nowhere Man? Is that what you're thinking? No, uh, but Nowhere Man came out. Nowhere Man was late 90s, unfortunately. Yeah. So that was a lot, a lot, a lot further But a further whole afterwards. bunch of shows came out in the... There was a sh- there was another show about a quirky town, with and the main character was a sheriff and he wasn't. Um, I think it was Tom Scarrett or something. Oh picket yeah, fences. Yeah, it was, picket fences. You know, it was one of those picket fences. Yeah, picket fences was a direct response to Twin Peaks. I Northern can see Exposure that. was a direct response to Twin Peaks. Um, the spiritual so the spiritual uh, ancestor of Gravity Falls, which is a show called Erie, Indiana. Yes. Yeah, was a Twin Peaks. It was yeah. Basically, after Twin Peaks died, there were all of these shows that came into being that were a direct, you know, people sort of went, "We need something like that" because mm-hmm. there's you know, thousands of fans who are friggin' bereft. <laughs> um, there was a Dark Shadows revival. Right. That you know, that's like a that's like a Velvet Underground self-titled album sort of thing. You know, like the thing that's always said about the original mm. Velvet Underground album is that the release, the first release, was so limited that every person who bought the album started their own band. Like that is the sort of the benchmark yep. for <laughs> how influential something is. Is when you see something that is has has shifted the shifted the the tone of the genre so much that you see dozens of imitators mm. come afterwards. And I think this plays into it, too. It isn't just the tone of Twin Peaks that got carried over, but I think filming in the Northwest became a thing. I know that Northern Exposure takes place in Alaska, but it's filmed in Roslyn, Washington. Right. My namesake. Yes, you're named after <laughs> Roslyn. Wait, wait, did you actually be named after the town? I was named after the town of oh, Roslyn. Wow. My parents were musicians and played in the, the Brick Tavern. Which that's is amazing. set in the show too. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the the Rosalind's Cafe. Yeah, it's the cafe, and the sign is still painted there. They kept everything from the sets like, because Rosalind is a town of like five hundred mm. people, it and is. they're desperately trying to get any income <laughs> they can. And the same thing sort of happened with the X Files. The X Files is filmed in Vancouver, or was, yep. but it definitely has that Pacific Northwest mm. look to it. And I think some of the more mm. popular episodes of the X Files were set in the Pacific Northwest. Of over, they were. I want to say Jose Chung's from outer space yep. was set in washington yes it was yeah and uh i know battlestar galactica the reboot that they did in the early 2000s that one wasn't it was like filmed in vancouver but whenever they're in forests it always looks like pacific northwest well forests. you could argue that you know most Ooh. science fiction of the 2000s was I, I call it always british columbia planet <laughs> because you'll go outside it looks like the rainforest temperate rainforests of the pacific northwest it's all burnaby bc i think is where a lot of the studios are Oh, wow. It's so weird. It seemed like uh, in the 90s, there was uh, these first-run syndication shows that were coming out, and they were all either in British Columbia or in New Zealand. Those are the only places you could make anything, mm. and then you'd be on, like, Channel 13 <laughs> at 8 o'clock on a Saturday. Holy crap. There is, I don't know if anyone will even have heard of this show, but I want to say it was new, from New Zealand, and it was from the late 2000s, or no, early 2000s or, like, late 90s, and it was called The Tribe. 
And it was it like familiar. a post-apocalyptic thing where everybody under or over the age of 25 died of some virus. So it was just a bunch of pissant kids that were running the world and had like formed factions and gangs and it was just like grotesque makeup and bad hair it was like mad max with eight-year-olds it was oh. it was like blake blake seven with mad max in new zealand right that's what you're trying to say everything comes back to blake oh, seven yes, in oh my god uh so i want to talk about something and i want to get this out of the way this has nothing to do with twin peaks by the way but, Dude, I just talked about the tribe. Go yeah, for it. Like, <laughs> I th- we're not even trying to be topical. <laughs> it's point five for Christ's sake. Yes. So um, I got a phone call the other day that was one of the weirdest experiences. I, yes, I told Rosalind about this. Just the weirdest fucking thing happened to me. I got a phone call, and it was a survey from, what is it called? I wrote this down because this is just so... Incredibly weird. It was Amanda from Life Giving Moments <laughs> representing Stepping Stone Entertainment, which I looked up later, which is a Mormon direct to DVD movie. This is stuff that's too schmaltzy and too saccharine for the Hallmark Channel. And it was a survey that had a lot of conservative buzzwords about, you know, clean media and values. Yeah, values, family. A lot of these words that I know this is a person who's part of the ongoing war on fun. <laughs> Somebody who's like, what? There's a gay character in a TV show? Pick it! <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Just the sort of joyless, angry, I should be able to control everything my kid watch, even if it means I can control your TV, too. So mm. I'm going into this, and she throws the first uh, line at me about, do you think you should be able to control what your, te- your child sees on television? And I said, well, I think that's kind of a loaded question, and I go into explaining that, and I think there's a problem with that, and it sounds like this is exactly what we were talking about before, that you just want to basically homogenize all of TV to your standards and blah, 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 and make it less, you know, you want to enforce your your religious values on everyone else. And I hope I haven't jumped the gun, but and then she Ooh. goes... Uh-huh. And she has this kind of folksy Sarah Palin voice. <laughs> so she's like, moving on. And it was just kind of condescending, and I started to get a little heated. And it just goes on, and it goes leads to this question with her talking about how she wants to know if I would support a rating system for the internet. And then I just, it, I just like, okay, whatever. And I'm like, I had such a weird experience on this call that I Googled the name of this organization. Mm. And that's when it got weird. Like, fucking Twin Peaks weird. <laughs> and... Rosalind knows what I'm getting at. I haven't told you yet, Casey. But I was talking to a fucking robot. <laughs> what? It was an automated call. Oh, no. <laughs> it was an automated call where they had recorded some folksy Sarah Palin-type woman, and either they were using an Arnold Schwarzenegger-style soundboard, <laughs> or it was just responding to stuff I was saying. And I was just... I, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks I'm a little embarrassed because I was kind of... I was had. I was tricked by somebody with a soundboard. But I was fascinated. I was like, I didn't know where this, this you know, search uh, rabbit hole was going to go, but it certainly wasn't aimed for science fiction. And I was like, okay, what the fuck is going on? And I found this blog post from this guy talking about it. And he had a link... He actually recorded his call because he found it so weird. And it wasn't just that it was the same voice. It wasn't that it was the same intonations. It was the exact recorded lines that I had heard (laughs) from life-giving moments. And then this guy gets this call back again from the same robot. (laughs) And he decides he's going to try to break it. And he basically uses the same trick that Captain Kirk did back in a lot of the original series, which is he talks... 
Yeah, he yeah. talked it into blowing itself up. <laughs> <laughs> and he started, every time he would say, hello, it would go, hi, is Crystal there? Hello? Hi, is Jerry there? Hello? Hi, is James there? <laughs> and you realize that it thought it was starting a different phone call, and I'm starting to think maybe there isn't a person there. It's automated and keyed to certain words. <sighs> Weird. And he broke it, and he goes, and at one point it says, "Hi, is so in there?" And he goes, "Just make up your mind." <laughs> I'm gonna have to link to this in the in the show notes, but it is. It was so <sighs> fucking weird. It was like a mix between. Phyllis Schlafly and Skynet. <laughs> I'm Detective John Kimball. Stop it, you idiot! I just so you got to try and get it to call back now because there's all sorts of things. You yeah, could be how like, do you coax a robot you to call like, you back? Yes, this is Jesus. How can I help you? Let me forward you. To, and like Jesus might be a keyword. Yeah. I want to know where that goes, but it did say, because mm. I used the word censorship, we want to say we're not we're not about censorship. We're about blah, 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 blah. And the thing the guy on the, the call did, he recorded, said, are you a computer? Because you sound like a recording. I'm, I'm a, you're talking to a live person, but I am using a computer for quality assurance. Whoa. And then he huh. said, again, wait, are you a recording? I am using a computer, but I am using, <laughs> you know, I, but I am a live person, and it's for quality Holy assurance. And I'm like, use the exact same line, and she, he got him to use that same line four times. And it was so goddamn eerie, and I'm like, it made me look on this conversation, I'm like, how many phone calls am I getting from robots? <laughs> I'm like, where's John Connor when you need him? <laughs> I... I mean, are there are we getting automated telemarketers now? I, I'm actually starting to. Uh, I, I read this post when uh, House of Cards came out. House of Cards blew up, as people may know. House of Cards is the Netflix original series starring Kevin Spacey. That I think will probably be what the role that defines Kevin Spacey now, because hmm. uh, I think it's been so successful mm. for Netflix and for for Kevin Spacey. I'll say the name again, Kevin Spacey. <laughs> um, there was the uh, this article about how the people at Netflix who were deciding to pool their money to produce something had basically sort of aggregated the dem- the demographic of the Netflix users and they had sort of assembled the elements of a show that people, you know, by statistically, and they had come up with the House of Cards formula and was able to change it and tweak it based on sort of the the, the actuary actuarial knowledge of their audience. Then, and I'm just wondering now if how much how much of this is actually in play with the type with with that judges and determines the type of movies and television shows that we are receiving is that really it's just super intelligent robots <laughs> that are aggregating box office returns and internet chat comments and nice. being able to figure out what the executives are going to throw the next 150 million dollars at i would guess the fantastic four movie that does is explain the, the is... career of adam sandler oh ah! sick yep. burn oh god <laughs> though i think that that's over too also thanks to netflix I was robots I, love Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> no. Somebody got, needs I to. I got the. I thought House of Cards was a remake. Yeah, it's a British yeah, show. Yeah, it's a British. It show. was, but they they did, they did modify it pretty substantially from the you know not just to be an American show, but also they you know they they pretty heavily um, they pretty heavily rely on those demographics to to understand what shows they're going to bring back. Like Arrested Development was a big one, right? Mm-hmm. Like that. That uh, that the audience of Netflix is definitely the audience of the late '90s, early 2000s that thought that Arrested Development going off the air was a travesty and needed to be corrected. 
Um, which is not bad. I'm not saying that any of this is bad. I love the fact that certain shows get to have their sort of new life. They get to be they get to be resurrected on a different on a different network. That's mm. fine. That's fine. For I me. think maybe this is where the new season of Twin Peaks is coming from. Uh, is- Showtime. Showtime. Well, yeah. the yeah. fact that these Netflix numbers, though, are having an impact. Yeah. I know that this actually was something that Vince Gilligan, who was the showrunner on Breaking Bad, said, is that Netflix made his show a hit. That yep. The first couple seasons, it was kind of mm. slow going, but it was people watching whole seasons and marathoning them on Netflix that started jumping up their ratings. And it was season three that they became a hit. And it was all because people were able to just mainline this stuff for days and days in a row. And it brought in the ratings eventually. So it's kind of weird that mm. online streaming actually isn't the enemy of media the way that some people say. It's kind of cool, actually, that you think of way back when people had to do letter writing campaigns and stuff to get yeah. what they wanted back on air. Now it's, I mean, what was, it's crowdsourced. Mm. Which what is was kind the, of, the name of the, I'd have to look it up here. There was an organization that wanted to save Twin Peaks from being canceled and it was coop was the acronym it was like <laughs> citizens yep. for i don't remember what it was but it was coop as in cooper that's yeah. adorable rem- yeah <laughs> it, w- it was also i also remember this is uh apropos of the same thing that there was a letter writing campaign into paramount studios prior to the release of wrath of khan um that was trying to convince the because they had heard by by a rumor the rumor mill that they were going to kill spock which was everyone's favorite character, really? That they that they had this like they published. I believe it was in the Hollywood Reporter. Was it? Um, they published like this five five point message of the reasons not to kill Spock in the new movie <laughs> by the concerned citizens for mm. people who love Spock. I think you was. showed this to me, and one of them was that it would destroy the franchise. Yes, <laughs> and it ended up being the biggest thing that Star Trek ever did. Yeah. It actually saved it from the slump it got. Uh, after the first movie, I think our right. friend Greg Hatcher was talking about the Star Trek motion picture, that in a lot of ways it was the antithesis of crowdsourcing. It was kind of one of the faults I've said about sort of fan fiction sometimes is that you can be too close to the material and you start doing uh, wish fulfillment. Yep. Yeah. And it was a list of everything that Star Trek fans wanted out of their Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. It was serious. It was it was probing. It was thoughtful. It was philosophical. And it was boring. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, well, not, we're talking... Not ahead, only that, but it was full of amazing fucking special effects. Yes. Yeah. So I because mm. this is kind of sort of related to what you're bringing up, the idea of someone being too close to the material and writing something based on it. Paul, I heard that you're into Blake Seven. Is that right? <laughs> I I am. Yeah, I haven't watched it in ages, but I am a big fan. Yeah. Well, related to the idea of people being too close to the source material, one of the actors wrote his own novels, and I guess there's some of the. Yeah worst yep. novels of the entire expanded universe am I, I this is just what i've heard i haven't checked out any of the expanded universe stuff for blake seven yet but have you heard anything about that i have read um paul darrow's uh biography of avon and it, it's not good <laughs> okay. um he's he's it's one of those things that if he'd had a ghostwriter yeah it it could have been like if he'd if he'd sort of gone here's the story and here's the the beats I want to hit and had somebody with the craft hmm. uh, you know the writing craft um, to do it, it it could have been good but yeah it just it just read as fan fiction okay um, so there you go which <laughs> is which is odd because I read a bunch of Blake Seven like story collections and the the which are just like adventures and stuff. 
and not written by the cast, but you know, written by you know, BBC people or whatever, you know, the people that they they get to write Doctor Who, yeah, uh, books and stuff. And they were really good because with you know with prose, you don't have a special effects budget, but you do have access to all that awesome dialogue. Mm-hmm. So it plays to the strengths of Blake Seven and minimizes the weakness of it. So Blake Seven novelizations are actually really good when you have competent writers working on it. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, I- that, that was always a thing with a lot of British sci-fi. There's a certain kind of subgenre. I guess Red Dwarf would go into it, even though Red Dwarf is a mm. comedy. Yeah. Doctor Who, classic yep. Doctor Who especially, mm-hmm. is something where the writing has yep. to be really good because you have this weird contrast of incredible ambition where you're going to be in a different, complete setting every story, which is, I think, what the main reason why Doctor mm. Who did serials, so they could reuse the same costumes and set for four episodes in a row right. before going to the next planet. Yep. But the idea that you have a rock-bottom budget to create all of that, and it's the ambition mm. to say, I'm going to do something about other worlds and other planets and crazy technology and robots and aliens, mm-hmm. and i got to do it with $20. And some bubble wrap. Exactly. <laughs> and I love that, the contrast. And an in, oil refinery in Wales. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, or a, a rock quarry. That's the one that I always see, too. So many yeah. quarries. <laughs> and, yeah, just all things like that. So many rock quarry planets. So many breweries. <laughs> well, it's similar. Well, we were talking about yeah. British Columbia planet earlier. It's the same yeah. thing. Go outside and film the forest. Ooh. There you go. Alien <laughs> Run around planet. the California hills. Yeah. The planet that Kirk fought the Gorn in <laughs> is the same planet that they fought the race of giants that threw sur- Shuriken. And Is that the same, like, area that MASH was filmed in, too? It looks like it. <laughs> I would not at all be surprised. MASH is I... certainly filmed in California. Uh, Jim McQuarrie took me out to Vasquez Rocks where Kirk fought the Gorn. So I've totally been there. That's so cool. So <laughs> many TV shows. A lot of gun smoke was filmed out there. A lot of cowboy fights. Uh, you know, for as terrible as it is... A bunch of episodes of Out of Limits as well. Yeah. As terrible as it is, the second Bill and Ted's uh, movie has this sort of parallel scene hmm. where the 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 robot evil robot doubles of Bill and Ted... Um, try to murder Bill and Ted by throwing them off of Vasquez rocks. <laughs> but but it's presaged earlier where they're in like a cable station and that very same episode of Star Trek is on the te- on like on a monitor somewhere on the television. Mm. For some reason I love that. It, didn't that also happen in X-Men Days of Future Past is that they had a Star Trek original series episode on when they're viewing Three channels plus PBS. Yeah, it was yeah. A, it was a time travel episode too. Yeah. Mm. So I love I love that shit. They mm. lo- and actually in uh, Watchmen, uh, one of the things that, that happened at the very end when uh, Dan and Lori go to visit uh, Sally Jupiter in the retirement home, the Outer Limits episode that is playing, I think it's called Architects of Fear, is a story Architects about of fear. Yeah, it's about people orchestrating uh, tragedy to get to create world peace. Huh. Oh, so nice. they're actually making a reference they're, to they're it. They're actually. Well, in the Architects of Fear, they're actually building a fake alien. Oh, my God. I didn't know it went that far. <laughs> nice. Nice. That is great. Yeah, seriously. Architect, in Architects of Fear, they they get a human, in this case played by Bob Culp, who's in every third episode of Outer Limits, <laughs> and they conduct all these experiments on him so that his his anatomy is no longer even remotely human anymore. And then, you know, he's supposed to rampage around the Hollywood Hills and stuff, and and then this, you know, uh, the the implication is supposed to be he's a the the vanguard of an alien invasion. So yeah, the Watchmen really rips that off quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I always kind of like when you kind of know you're doing something similar, so you're like, fuck it, I got to put a reference to it in there. So it doesn't feel like I'm trying to get away hmm. with something. Um, though I don't know. I heard somewhere that uh, they had already written most of the series when Alan Moore heard about that episode. It was like, fuck it, we got to make a reference. So yep. it goes by on both ways, I think. Okay. Uh, so I have to bring something up apropos of nothing. Uh, the The Fantastic Four movie. Apparently fucking awful. Oh, God. 9% on Rotten Tomatoes. I read one review and it said an unmitigated garbage fire. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, my, my, uh, my, my intro to comic books was the fact that my dad was a huge comic book fan and loved Fantastic Four. He had the first 60 issues of Fantastic Four, I think. I hope he held on to those. No, no. They got donated to the kid's ward of the hospital that he recuperated in. Oh, Anyways, wow. um... He loved them, and, oh. and I grew up on Fantastic Four. Um, I am coming around to, I mean, what is it? The, is it the Corman, Corman TV, 90s TV version mm. of Fantastic Four? Moving forward to the Jessica Alba, you know, Michael Chiklis one, mm. now into this one where they're trying to reboot it again. I'm of the opinion that maybe Fantastic Four doesn't make such a good co- uh, comic book movie, superhero movie, and we should just like pretend like it doesn't exist. I actually disagree. Hmm. I think if put into the right hands, somebody who can do something that is fun and whimsical and huge and exciting and ambitious could do a really, really awesome Fantastic Four movie. Doesn't Billy Zane play the Silver Surfer in the Hmm. second one or something like that? I don't know if it's Billy Zane, but he's voiced by Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, my God. I would have preferred it be Billy Zane. That's just my personal opinion. So, basically, the Fantastic Four is a group of explorers and astronauts and scientists who go on crazy adventures to other planets and other dimensions, and they go back in time, and one of them is a super strong rock guy who talks like a cab driver, and he's (laughs) awesome, and a stretchy scientist. They're a family unit. The idea of the world's coolest Mm. family constantly exploring... It's essentially Doctor Who with a family unit and a much bigger budget. And it has the potential to be really incredible. But the problem is is that mm. I think a lot of people who have been making movies want to do something super easy. And the easy thing is, can I just steal the archetype of the last popular superhero movie? Which is why all the DC movies mm. are looking like the most popular and most successful, financially at least, uh, superhero movies that DC mm. and Warner Brothers have put out, which is... Dark Knight. That's why Superman looks like Dark Knight. That's why the next movie is going to look like Dark Knight. And they learn the wrong lessons that maybe the problem with the Green Lantern movie was not that it was lighter and funner. Maybe it was just shit. And maybe (laughs) that's why it failed. And so they want to learn the lesson. Well, this one made money, so let's just do this over and over. And it feels like with Fantastic Four... They were just like, well, let's just do the X-Men again. Mm-hmm. Let's just do this thing again. And let's not fi- you know, actually look into what's the thing that makes this thing fun and interesting. Why did this franchise, why do these characters last 50 years? Let's put that on the screen. I mean, uh, mm. this is from my perspective. I have just no interest whatsoever in seeing any of those movies. I think the, I think the things that seem, it's, it's hard to not put this word on a comic booky that seems sort of frivolous and silly and over the top and ridiculous. Um, I'm less interested in seeing, you know, and, and I don't know. I don't know if you've seen Ant-Man. I'm not interested in seeing it. I'm just not. It was good. There's nothing that's, there's nothing that's pulling me towards it because, yeah. um, I, because I have a limited number of hours in my life and I'm just not going to go see it. I'm not going to, I'll, I'll try to go. I, I have to admit here, everyone listening to the show should boycott Regal Cinemas because I had a period of three hours where I was, oh, sorry, three hours where I was going to go during the day 
and catch a matinee cinema of the second Avengers movie, which I really wanted to see. And they insisted, apart from all rationality, that they had to search my bag before I went into a matinee cinema that I was the only person going into the theater. And I said, no, I won't let you search my bag. There's no reason to search my bag. Um, And they didn't let me go in, and so I got my ticket back. So... I'll never go to Regal again, cool. not because I'm a sovereign citizen or anything, <laughs> uh, but because I was like, this is absurd. You choose one guy in the middle of the day going to a, a showing that there's only a, one person showing up to, and you pick me out as the guy you're going to like, grope my balls. Well, to be fair, you were wearing a bandolier of hand grenades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were asking for I, it. I had, my, I had the two strings of uh, the bandoliers across my chest, cross my chest, just like, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm probably not going to give two shits about any superhero movie until they make a Wonder Woman movie. And even then, there's Ooh. probably the possibility of it being like the Dark Knight anyway. So I'm kind of putting her in the Batman Superman movie. They but are. it's not about her. Yeah. She's never going to get her yeah. own movie. So I'm just, just no, like, that's, fuck this, it. I think this the is point? the way to introduce her to get her own movie. I thought that's oh, what oh, this was. Oh, right. For franchise reasons. Of course okay. they're yeah. going to give her her own movie. You after know, this. in uh, a few years ago, Joss Whedon was attached to making a Wonder Woman movie that ended up falling through because there was a lot of creative mm. differences. Yeah, and I don't know if I'd want Joss Whedon making a Wonder Woman movie. I think you'd have a much better chance of doing it than anything that Warner Brothers is doing right now. Yeah. Mm. At least it would be fucking fun. Yeah, that's true. I don't know, Paul. I know that we're both nerds, so I guess coming from... Nerds! And now for the Democratic response. (laughs) (laughs) So, Paul, I know, kind of where are you? Are you burned out yet? Because I know we're both tremendous nerds who grew up on this shit. Um, I I was really... I really enjoyed Ant-Man. I was really bummed that Edgar Wright got taken off it. Mm, me too. Um, because I think that's a sign where you're going. Our, our corporate needs are more interest are more important than your artistic storytelling vision. And I've got a lot of confidence in Edgar Wright's ability to tell a really entertaining story. Um, so uh, it's back to that you know the robot demographic thing. You know, I'm kind of sort of going. Well, the robots disagree with you, Edgar Wright, <laughs> as to how to make a good film. Um. And so I was really, I was, I had a bit of trepidation going in. I enjoyed Ant-Man. I thought there were, I, I liked, I liked 90% of it. Um, but there's, there were a couple of scenes where I felt that things happened and I, I just sort of went, wait a second, where did that come from? Um, cause it felt like they, they were so in a hurry to do, to introduce plot elements and story elements that they, they kind of eliminated a couple of character elements where they, they would introduce a character and then all of a sudden the character would be somebody's best pal and you're sort of going, wait a second, weren't these characters introduced in like, you know, one scene ten minutes ago and have they not spoken a single word since then? <laughs> um, but aside from that, I, re- I enjoyed... The thing I liked about Ant-Man, and it's the thing I liked about the first bunch of Marvel films, was the fact that when they did Iron Man, they did it as a techno-thriller. When they did Captain America, they did it as a war film. When they did Thor, they did it as a fish-out-of-water comedy. And Ant-Man is a heist film. And I like the fact that they aren't locking themselves into a formula. They're not sort of going, this is the superhero story. Because the simple fact with superheroes is that there isn't a superhero story. Um, And a story about, uh, you know, Batman as a pulp crime fighter is very different to a story about Green Lantern as a space cop or... You know, Wonder Woman is a philosophical ambassador from a mythical island who can bench press a car. <laughs> Life goals. 
<laughs> yeah, I I don't think I'm not burned out yet. I'm not at that point, and I think this is a point no. that I I make to my good friend Sam Mulvey as well, who's in the same boat as both Casey and and Roz on this. Is that mm. it's something that I grew up with that I've wanted to see treated seriously, not as serious as say Zack Snyder's trying to treat it, which is dumb and pretentious. But treat it as if it's like a a real movie like anything else, because for a lot of us, if there was a comic book based movie, it looked like a Roger Corman thing. It looked like a cheap schlocky thing that somebody threw together in their basement. And when Mr. Fantastic stretched, he'd jump into a pose and then there'd be like a tube moving across the screen with a glove on the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) It looked like cheap, slacky shit. I mean, the best you could get is something like... Beastmaster 2 level something or the Masters of the Universe mm. movie. There was a shitty Doctor Strange movie in the uh, 1970s. Captain America had a crappy movie in 1990 starring J.D. Salinger's son <laughs> which was made and the Captain America costume mm. was so cheap that it had rubber ears on the outside of it. Wow. It was awful. Mm. Uh, There's just so many cheap things. Mm. Um, aside from the Tim Burton Batman movies and the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, superhero movies always looked really cheap. And I've kind mm. of waited to see this stuff be done. And we're branching into stuff that, you know, Ant-Man is nobody to most people. But I've sort of seen him in the periphery of my comic book reading since I was like 10. And... I'm seeing, like, holy shit, they're making a movie about this guy, too? It isn't like who. It's like, I know exactly who it is. It's like, it's this, like, obscure guy who doesn't get the attention, and suddenly even that guy's getting a movie. It feels like we're moving into a kind of a weird renaissance, and I know it's not going to last, and I know eventually we're going to have this superhero bubble burst, and we're going to be back to just, like, one or two of these movies a year, and I'm fine with that happening, because it happens to every genre that gets overblown. Like, you know... Post-apocalyptic teen YA stuff is going to fall apart at some point. Uh, musicals fell apart. Westerns mm. fell apart. And they still come out, but not nearly as often. And I'm fine with that, but I'm just going to gobble this yeah. shit up while I can. And the beautiful thing about being a nerd now is there's so much superhero shit out there that I can afford to be picky about it. And they don't get that nerd defensiveness yep. that I got where I'm like, what do you mean the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie's bad? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was shitty. And now I can be picky. So you know what? I'm not watching Fantastic Four. Mm. I'm not watching Batman v Superman because yep. I, I, like you said, I have so many hours in my life and I don't want to fill it with shit. Well mm. said. Mm. Well said for saying the same yeah. thing I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice repa- yes. Nice reboot. Reboot. Uh, oh. I think that's probably a good place to end it. I really loved having you guys on for this. Um, uh, oddly enough, just in terms of coincidences, I just want to say that you screamed at reboot before, and one of the guys who worked on reboot was Dan DiDio, who's the current. <laughs> Uh, publisher of DC Comics. Oh shit! And also, Casey mentioned Billy, Billy Zane, and Billy Zane was totally in Twin Peaks. Holy shit! He oh, was. he was. That's right. With the he always has a weird wig. I always like to look at Billy Zane's wig in a movie. I completely forgot about that. Oh, Billy Zane's mm. wigs are kind of like the mm. Christopher Reeve version of Lex Luthor, where they're different, but you know that they're not real. This is going to sound awful, but is Billy Zane even <laughs> still alive? Yeah, he's still yes. alive. Okay, is he, he working? His yep. his best kind of. his best cameo was was perhaps one of David Bowie's best cameo, which was in the first Zoolander movie where they had the walk off. That's all oh. I'm going to say. Um, you by can the forget way, that movie except for the oh 
David Bowie as the the ghost as the yeah, as the ghost in Fire Walk with Me. That's the only reason why I watched the movie originally in the nineties. <laughs> what the fuck is David Bowie doing in this movie? I don't know. He it was a favor. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. Uh, by the way, uh, Billy Zane, one of Biff's goons in Back to the Future. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> in Back to the Future too. It's when they go into. Uh, they're chasing Marty, the Marty of the present movie, to, of part two. And then they mm. go into the, the dance hall, and they see Marty up on stage playing the guitar. And they're like, how'd he get it up on stage? And Billy Zane is the one who goes, how'd he change his clothes so fast? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, oh, Billy Zane. Stay tuned? Meh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I learned so much just now about... Yeah my life in general and pop culture <laughs> it was informative and entertaining <laughs> uh, so I, think... I wasn't being sarcastic oh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> radio versus the martians is produced by mike gillis and casey doran our editor was mike gillis our theme music was written and performed by todd maxfield matsumoto find us online at radio versus the martians.com and send us your feedback at info at radio versus the martians.com Um, are you a computer? Yeah, you are talking to a live person, but I'm using a computer for quality control purposes. So what's your name? Life-giving moments, and my name is Amanda. Amanda, are you a computer? Yeah, you are talking to a live person, but I'm using a computer for quality control purposes. Um, just say, I'm not a computer. <laughs>